This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. Perhaps I was a little protective in the book of those people who've chosen to grow, but that's because I get tired of the argument that only small is good. Because only small is good if you're making three loaves of bread and employing nobody, you're not really embracing the possibilities which are age old of economic independence behind being a real artisan. So if you listen to this show, you know that I read a lot of nonfiction books about farming and food in preparation for the interviews I conduct. Most of them are worth reading simply because of the information or arguments they contain, but only a few of them contain really good prose. Finding the Flavors We Lost is one of those books. It was written by this guy. Hi, so I'm Patrick Q. I'm the restaurant critic of Los Angeles Magazine. I've been doing it for 15 years. And uh, I've also written a couple of culinary histories. Uh, The most uh, recent one is Finding the Flavors We Lost, uh, From Bread to Bourbon, How Artisans Reclaimed American Food. And about 10 years ago, I wrote The Last Days of Haute Cuisine, uh, The Coming of Age of America's Restaurants. Patrick failed to mention that he's received a James Beard Award for his food writing. Finding the Flavors We Lost represents Patrick's effort to understand and explain the origins and evolution of America's artisanal food culture, which unlike Europe's, has pretty shallow roots. But it's also a book of stories about people who are seriously passionate about the food they produce, written by someone who's as committed to quality in his own vocation as the people he's writing about. I spoke to Patrick in late January of this year. Here's our conversation. Patrick Hugh, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Pleasure to be here, Jordan. Patrick, I've read a lot of books about food culture, and almost all of them begin with a preface or introduction that lays out the author's motivations and thesis. Yours doesn't. From page one, you immerse your readers in the lives of the artisanal food producers whose stories you're telling. And I'm wondering if omitting an introduction was purely a stylistic choice, or if you were trying to make a statement by not making one. Um, That's a good question. Uh, I I wasn't... I don't think it rises to making a statement, but I did want to get into the story as quickly as possible. And um, uh, so, you know, some prefaces that I read are sound like a lot of throat clearing before getting into into what one wants to talk about. And I knew that if, I knew I had to make the story as compelling as possible, so it wasn't dry, theoretical about food. It had to be about people. It had to be about flavor. And I had a great scene of this uh, this homesteader receiving a cow on her wedding day and not knowing what to do with the milk. And I, I, I sort of said to myself, let's start there and let's start immediately and let's get the ball rolling. Let's get the narrative rolling. And um, so, yeah, I, 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 I was conscious there was going to be no preface. And I just hoped that uh, I could build up the argument as I went along and not have a big expository five, ten pages saying what the argument was going to be. I hope it worked. I think, you know, Patrick, I want to tell you, I think it did. I found it, I found the style refreshing and there is a thesis there. There is an argument there, but it's, it's, it's just wound through these, these really beautifully written stories you tell about these producers. So, um, yeah, I I think it worked really well. Uh, so, so Patrick, I don't, I don't, (laughs) I want to, I want to start maybe with the topic of cynicism. 
Um, I don't think that many people would doubt that the artisanal food movement has demonstrated a, a sincere commitment to producing really good food. But but there's also a cynical element of the public um, about art, artisanal food. Um, it's, yeah. it's Some people see it as, as a feat or precious or elitist. And for this book, you interviewed what I have to assume was dozens of food artisans across the country. And I'm wondering if, if you think those characterizations or, are fair or, or, or to, what degree to what degree they're fair. Okay, so we're, we're diving into really what is the current artisanal scene and with, 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 that, with that question. And you're, you're absolutely right. Certainly a lot of people think artisanal food is for you know, the elite few who care about um, some sort of nuance of flavor that everybody else is perfectly happy to live without. And um, I certainly was aware of that, uh, you know, as somebody who was researching this, as somebody who was uh, purchasing it. You know, sometimes I see things like, oh, you know, free trade, uh, free trade, uh, small batch uh, vodka. Uh, uh, the free trade, like quinoa, small batch vodka. And I'd say to myself, oh my goodness, you know, how how small, how how tiny the demographic who's interested in this particular ingredient is. Um, what is the perception of somebody who uh, is just browsing in the liquor store? Is this what their idea of artisanal is? And there is this uh, this understanding, this uh, perception. It's very twee. It's very um, inconsequential, and so therefore, I sort of had to to make sure that the consequences, the importance, the 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 real uh, passion that existed behind a search for flavor, and um, that's why craft became such a important aspect of this book because people are forcing themselves to learn excellence and i don't mean it intellectually intellectually cheesemakers bakers brewers you name it there's the intelligence of the hands that has to be learned and and american artisans canadian artisans you know are learning this without all the benefits of european artisans which is the guild system, the apprenticeship system, the even the family history of of great quality, the the cultural idea of great quality, you know, certainly in the United States, many many of the artisans who who grew up who who told me, you know, I grew up eating craft cheese, I grew up eating eating just you know store bought regular bread. They, it was passion that led them to learn how to become artisans. So that was one aspect of why it's important. And then there's an important aspect which artisans sort of don't want to talk about is growth and size and um, uh, having economic uh, importance. Uh, a lot of artisans today are in a position where they can employ people, that they're getting larger, that they're, they're selling to more people. And I find anybody today who can create jobs and do it through something of quality is very much operating in the real world and doing something that's fantastic. And so um, whether it's craft or just the economic force that artisans have managed to establish, these are far from, from inconsequential little um, you know, one-percenter um, uh, worries. 
Um, this is this is very much operating in the real world, but operating in the real world with an idea of excellence and quality, which makes it actually inspiring. Well, well let's talk about that that economic force or the the economic challenges that 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 artisans face that that you mentioned because there's a real you do a great job of exploring in the book the tension between you know producing food for flavor and producing food for efficiency because at least in the mainstream food system there there really is there's there's you kind of well our food system has really emphasized one over the other and that in pursuing the immense levels of efficiency that that it's attained it's 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 largely lost flavor but but then there's the paradox as as you kind of mentioned that that these these artisans ultimately the ones who succeed have to face um the prospect of sacrificing at least a little bit of flavor for efficiency and i'm wondering where you know where where do you draw the line where 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 you know <laughs> it, 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 i know it's a complicated question but um if I may, I think you took a, a bit of a def- like you were defensive of a lot of those artisans in the book who have chosen to to expand and to succeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but and yet and yet if they go too far, I think there is a point when they perhaps have sacrificed too much flavor. So so do you have any sense of where that line should be drawn? Well, I think I think the, the line should be drawn by the consumer who says this is no longer as good as it used to be, and so it's not a very theoretical. Um, I don't have a theoretical answer for that. Um, artisans have always existed in the marketplace. Um, you know, if, 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 if you're not selling, it's a hobby. So um, an artisan has always had to face, you know, the reality of the marketplace. And in, on the good, the good side, that's created a, a level of independence. That's created a way to navigate life. Um, on the on the uh, it's not the other side, but there are market forces at work. Also, you have to make something well enough that a person wants to buy it. So, growth. There isn't a, there isn't a, a number. Um, you know, artisans with one artisan said to me, "I've always used a mixing bowl to to bake." One of one of the pioneer American uh, North um, you know, uh, Californian bakers. She said, "I always used a, a a mixing bowl, a Hobart mixing bowl to bowl to to bake." Would somebody tell me the size of mixing bowl that once you go to that size, you're no longer an artisan? You know, it's a good question. It doesn't exist. If the quality drops. The, per, the market will respond by no longer saying it is worth the extra cost to purchase what you're doing. And we all certainly have to be on the lookout for very cynical market manipulators who will um, uh, produce things qu- practically on an industrial scale, but wrap it in, you know, paper, old paper, and, and, and wrap it in little twine and have kind of letterpress font labeling. And there's an, you're absolutely right, there's an awful lot of cynicism out there. But to start from, from, from I, I get very nervous about the premise of growth is bad. And um, per, perhaps I was a little protective in the book of those people who've chosen to grow but but that's because I get tired of the argument that only small is good, because only small is good. If you're making three loaves of bread and employing nobody, you're not really embracing the possibilities, which are age old, of economic independence behind being a real artisan. You know, brewers are constantly having this discussion because craft brewing 
has become defined by small scale. Now, the American Brewers Association has a, a real number, 6 million barrels a year. It used to be 2 million barrels a year until Samuel Adams, who makes more than 2 million barrels a year, uh, said, oh, so we're no longer a craft brewer. We practically invented craft brewing, but now we're no longer a craft brewer. So they upped it to 6 million barrels a year. For me, these numbers are inconsequential. It's about the quality. And the, the argument is, has been oversimplified to growth is selling out. And if we, if, if we just continue that, it, it really will become the elitist joke that people are you know, all too ready to accuse artisanal food of. Patrick, when I read, when I read your book, like, it's, it seems so clear to me that at least the people you profiled um, are, 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 <laughs> are true artisans, are, are, are very, very sincere in their efforts. And it had me wondering if some of that bad reputation and cynicism comes from the presence of imposters in the market that, that muddy the waters when it comes to uh, people forming opinions about, about food. Because, you know, it doesn't take much, you know, fake instances of, of fake artisanal food for people to, to maybe paint the whole industry as kind of full of shit. Yeah. Um, well, um, again, to, to, you know, to, to, to talk about brewing for a second, huge brewers, Anheuser-Busch, Miller, they've all started little side breweries um, like Blue Moon that sort of um, have, have the, the, the artisanal um, um, sort of fonts, the artisanal posters, the whole idea of small batch, but, but there's huge breweries behind them. And um, uh, so they've sort of co-opted the, 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 the idealism. I, I've always come back to, to this idea of time because I feel time is the, the sort of the key question in this. What, what industrial efficiency did was pencil out time. Time was always what established, what created flavor. And there were certainly different different notions of time. A, a baker might require 24 hours to go from mixing bowl to, to you know, bakery shelf. Uh, a, 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 a distiller might need three years to go from, from still to, to bottle. You know, those three years of, of, a, of a whiskey, a bourbon slowly aging in a, in, in a barrel in a, in a rickhouse. Um, a cheesemaker may need a few months. But industrial efficiency, the first thing that they penciled out was time. You know, things sitting in warehouses was costing them money. Things sitting in vats and barrels, in, in proofing baskets, you name it, that's money to to uh, industrial efficient approach to food. So instead, you know, I ignore the I ignore the packaging because packaging can be so easily manipulated. I ignore the font. I almost ignore the the you know poetic lyrical stories on people's websites because you know who knows if that's true but what 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 i key in on is how much time did it take to make this and how much time did it take to develop did, did the producer allow to put the flavor to develop and you know when 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 you're in a with a cheesemaker and they say oh, it's not ready after eight months and i'm going to leave it you know nine ten months before before putting it out to market, that's 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 all financial sacrifice on that person's part to be able to when they sell that wheel of cheese to say it is as good as it's going to be, and so 
I guess it's a long, long-winded answer, but for me, the key aspect of it all is is the time. So I think there's no better illustration of of that concept of the time that you're talking about in in your book than than maybe the the story of bourbon and and how the flavor, the true flavors of corn, were lost from bourbon in, in because of advances in in the distilling process. Could you can you recall that? I know it's been a long time since you wrote it. <laughs> can you recall that? And if so, can you talk about it a bit? Uh, yes. Well, what, what I was really interested in, uh, um, but I, I went to Kentucky and I went as a person who loved bourbon, but but uh, didn't really understand the the the, the, the more than a, a very basic understanding of of, of um, distilling. And um, I, I don't I, I don't think we have time for long you know talk on 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 distilling, but certainly. Uh, in those early years, it was a very raw product. It wasn't aged. It wasn't <clears throat> the sort of a very something like raw, harsh alcohol. Now, by by the 1830s and 1840s, um, they they they'd understood that aging in oak barrels really um, um, mellowed uh, the, the 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 spirit while maintaining that wonderful core corn flavor well industrial efficiency of course came knocking and the column still um was uh, uh invented and um invented in, in dublin ireland actually um and it was soon being used by um uh distillers who could who could distill thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of neutral spirits in in, in, in in tiny fractions of time, like one day. And of course the the price was the flavor was taken from from whiskey. And it very much became a neutral spirit which could be turned into I mean they were talk about cynical. Um with that neutral spirit they would add coloring, they would add flavoring and they could call it um you know whiskey, they could call it um uh, bourbon, they could call it gin, they could call it um, uh, brandy. Um, you know, all these things in reality are made from different ingredients. But once you had neutral spirits and just depend on coloring and flavoring, um, you can you can do anything. And what what the modern artisanal craft distilling movement has done is very much uh, reclaim. Um, a tradition of ingredient-driven distilling, which is which is almost a paradox because distilling, you know, as you know, it 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 uh, it, it, it condenses and then it, it condenses the essence of of a, of a, of, a, of an alcoholic beverage, maybe a five percent uh, alcohol, but by distilling it 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 purifies and increases the alcohol. And 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 renders it almost uh, uh, the purest version of that ingredient, and you know that's of course why people love a great Armagnac, a great brandy, a single um, um, single malt Scotch, and modern artisanal distilling is very much bringing that idea of the ingredient can speak through through this product. Um, distilling does not just strip away. And leave you with neutral alcohol. Great distilling celebrates an ingredient, 
and it can very much celebrate uh, a very uh, you know part of our heritage of 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 corn. Okay, Patrick, I'm I'm an organic veggie grower. I'm a small scale veggie grower, and uh, I yeah. I'm not I'm not going to call myself an artisan, and I'm not just being humble. Um, but I do care about I do care about flavor uh, that I'm producing, um, and I'm I get asked a lot of the time by my customers and just others that I'm talking to about what I do, why why what I produce costs more than than you know the stuff that's in the grocery stores, and to some degree you just illustrated why it can cost more with your story about bourbon. But I'm 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 one. I was really curious to ask you if, in your research for this book or just in other research you've done, if you've had a chance to see um, economies of scale in action, whether it's by like mainstream food industry or whether it's just by artisans who have taken major steps towards you know more efficient manufacturing. I'm wondering if if you have developed any kind of quantitative sense of just how much more profitably or efficiently these um, one can operate at, at, at larger economies of scale. Because when I answer the question that people, those questions that people ask me, I have a really tough time giving a good answer because I, 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 I only have an idea that um, these much larger industrial farms can produce things much cheap, mm. much more cheaply just because of economies of scale, but I haven't actually seen them. Do you have a better sense of, 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 of what can be achieved? <laughs> Um, well, let me see if I can. It's, a, it's, it's such a smart question. Let me see if I can uh, if I can do it justice. Um, first of all, I think f- anybody in the food world is almost operating at a disadvantage compared to the way the the other world works. Because you know, when I go to the doctor, I see there's maybe three or four doctors sharing a waiting room, sharing medical equipment. They've got some kind, they're sharing the, the cost of, uh, of having a person there to greet, to take calls to an office manager. I mean, doctors have figured out how to band together and reduce their costs. Um, other industries are going towards automation. Um, whether it's banks that really don't want you to walk inside the bank and take up a person's time, they want you to do everything on the ATM, uh, department stores that um, no longer have people, you know, that many people working the floor, and they they leave people to browse them, browse, and just have a, one or two people and a ca- somebody at the cash register. I mean, all these other industries are figuring out how do we cut costs? How do we cut costs? Food whether it's restaurants or producers, cannot often take advantage of this. I mean, the restaurant business is trapped in a sort of two waiters for every 10 tables. Um, um, Chefs are criticized if they have too many operations. Um, It's almost like, uh, no, you have to to maintain... uh, um, uh, business practices that uh, the rest of the world doesn't have to. And artisans and farmers, I think, are, are together with restaurant people sort of regarded as having to have certain uh, ways of operation that sometimes are not um, really economically feasible. So that's one one aspect of it. The economies of scale, let's just talk about cheese, most most 
artists and cheesemakers want to know the herd of cows that the their milk is coming from. They either own the cows and farm, you know, uh, milk them themselves, or they have a deal with one farm and that farm produces the milk. Um, so very few artisanal cheesemakers are using um, co-op or commodity milk because they would argue the the quality of their cheese begins with the quality of the milk. So they don't want 50 farmers' milks mixed together and then being delivered to them. Um, uh, bread, uh, wheat, um, you know, one, one hears constantly about um, artisan bakers rejecting commodity wheat. That wheat made by, you know, grown by, by, by large entities or even large commodities. Um, they, they more and more um, bakers are promoting the farmers who are growing the wheat. So again, that's that's a reduction in size, not a not a not an increase in size. It's it's sort of it's almost a it's almost a, it is almost a paradox because the the um, the you know artisans want to want to sell more, need to sell more, but they want to source the ingredients from smaller and smaller plots of land or from smaller individuals. Um, I think I think. What what I see, and I sort of have my my restaurant critic hat on now. I've worked at the restaurant critic for 16 years, also is rather than rather than increase their size, what farmers have sort of figured out is increase your your quality. And um, you know, every ambitious restaurant uh, in LA, certainly the city I know best, is listing the names of the of the farmers who are who are um, who are selling them their their, um, their 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 vegetables and fruits, and so you differentiate yourself. It's not quite economies of scale. It's 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 economies of quality um, that you, when the quality gets to a certain stage and uh, the the chef needs that quality, they're prepared to pay more for that quality. And the farm becomes sustainable. You know, I, I do think one of the most hopeful signs is that people's palates are being educated to recognize it. And you know, you bite into something that's been grown by a by a, 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 a smaller farmer, and you say, "Damn, you know, that this is this this is unique. This is this ingredient captured. This is this place captured." Um, you know, I get nervous around the notions of terroir, but sometimes it's just so there in every mouthful that it's not that you know it, it's it's obvious it exists. So, Patrick, last last question. Uh, there's a, there's a section in your book that, where you're talking about food provenance, and yeah. you, you write that uh, quote. I sometimes think that the idea of indigenous flavor is being burdened with recreating the bonds that industrialization destroyed, end quote. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could elaborate about, on that, on, on what you meant there. <laughs> um, you know, I think it comes back to being a little protective of people who are doing good work and, and nervousness about um, huge societal shifts being loaded onto them. Um, uh, you know, I'm, uh, one example I'll give is 
is is chefs and um you know in LA we have a very large and unfortunate um homeless problem and um you know chefs do their best to donate extra food they 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 um i mean there are more there are no more generous people than chefs they're constantly giving to to benefits giving their time giving their employees time giving uh, you know giving food but you know i hear people say oh well i i the, you know there was a homeless person down the street two homeless people how can you justify going to to have a you know a, a, an expensive meal and it sort of bothers me because a you know that chef is creating jobs and and uh, tax dollars and indirectly helping solutions to homelessness but also just you know and there's also a, a doctor's office down the street there's also a dentist there's also a gas station why is it why is it the chef who is responsible for solving issues that we as a society have to solve so there's an aspect of you know let's let's not do that and and then from the point of view of, of the, the broader food world it's you know artisans are people who are devoting their lives to quality and yes there's a, there's a there's a on an individual basis they are reconnecting people to to their heritage reconnecting people to flavors that were completely endangered if not extinct um but let's leave it at that. Let's, you know, if if this if this you know um, heirloom pippin reminds you of of a pippin in you know in your grandparents' garden, that's great. But that sometimes is enough. It's not why why did um, you know and why has uh, industrial efficiency and and mass agricultural practices uh, stripped uh, flavor from the food we eat those are big questions those are questions that have to be engaged with as a society just as we have to engage with homelessness as a as a society but i don't i don't think you can load that on the shoulders of every baker cheesemaker brewer chocolate maker you know uh, uh coffee roaster they are doing their little bit but that doesn't mean the rest of us, uh, you know, aren't as charged with with um, we're not absolved from engaging with that question um, just because we're um, consumers. Um, and so I think what 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 I was trying to get at and and, and what you quote is each artisan is responsible for bringing their I. And, and and farmer and, and I do believe there's artisan farming. Uh, each artisan and farmer is responsible for bringing their plot of land, you know, for hoeing their row, and whether that's coffee roasting, bourbon making, um, single source uh, um, tea, you name it. But we, as a community and as a society, are responsible for addressing the bigger problems. Um, uh, so I think that's what I was, uh, what I was trying to get at. Well, Patrick, you, it was, it was a, a really enjoyable read. I'm, I'm really glad you wrote it and that I had a chance to read it. And I, I'm, I'm, I very much appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it today. 
I'm delighted, and thank you for all these great questions. You've really made me think about uh, think about the book in a new way. So thank you. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that, folks. I highly recommend Patrick's book. And guess what? I've got one copy of the book to give away to a Canadian listener who promotes this episode on Twitter or shares the post for this episode on Facebook, which you'll find at the Ruminant Podcast Facebook page. And speaking of giveaways, Matt Trevers of Miramichi, New Brunswick, won the copy of Bread, Wine, Chocolate that I'm giving away. That was the book I covered in the last episode. As for the Wireweeder giveaway from Two Bad Cats, I haven't had time to ask Peter who won, so I'll announce that in the next episode two weeks from now. Okay, so look. It's my intention with this new format to include a shorter segment in each episode that's aimed squarely at the practical aspects of farming and gardening. I don't have one this week, but cut me some slack, okay folks? I didn't have time this time, because two weeks ago, my son was born. Vanessa and I are the proud owners of a brand new organic baby boy, and we couldn't be happier, but we also couldn't be more tired. Well, okay, I could. Vanessa's been kind of taking one for the team as far as sleep deprivation goes. But I have been really busy with the baby, and so it made it hard to do a second segment for this episode. Anyway, his name's Levon Samur Mar, and we like him. <laughs> I'll talk to you in two weeks, everyone, and I'll bring a practical segment with me come hell or high water. Oh, and please consider doing the following. Promote episodes of this podcast that you like on your social media so that others can experience your joy. And write me emails. I like getting them. Editor at theruminant.ca Secretly or not so secretly, I guess now. I was disappointed I didn't get a single email about that short piece about being in the zone that I did in December, the one that features that Metallica song, which probably confirms my biggest fear in releasing it, that it wasn't cool, it was just lame. Which is okay. Sometimes you gotta be willing to skin your knees. And don't bother complimenting it now. I don't need your pity. But send me emails about other stuff, good or bad. Okay? Okay. XOXO. Right outside of the city's reaches We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves And live life like it was meant to be trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.